this morning will be Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 33. We will be focusing on verses 22 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning the reading. In verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Before we return to the preaching of the word, let's again seek our God in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for the wonderful truths expressed in this text as we see the love of Christ for the church put on display. We pray that you would be with me, the words that I speak, that I would be able to express uh, with clarity and with power uh, that great love of Christ uh, for us as sinful people. We pray that you would be with those who are called to marriage here in this room today, that you would enable them to reshape their lives after that great heavenly pattern of Jesus Christ and his glorious church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is marriage? <clears throat> Various answers could be given. Marriage is an institution where two people join themselves together so that they can double their financial assets, obtain tax breaks, and get health coverage. A marriage is a union that two people enter into because they both find that the other makes them happy. Marriage, 
Or another definition could be a way to celebrate the sense of self-fulfillment that two people find in each other. Or marriage, a way to uh, celebrate and express a commitment between two people, particularly a man and a woman, so long as the other person continues to make that other person happy. Various answers that fall so far short of what our passage expresses for us this morning. Our passage instead expresses a much higher view of what marriage is, that it is the muffled mirth of heaven's feasting hall, the distant din that drops to earth and echoes faint and small, that the end of history is a wedding feast, a wedding banquet, and backwards into history in so many marriages, there is a glimpse and a glimmer of what that greater reality will one day be. Marriage is a portrayal in miniature of the love of Jesus Christ for his church. Well, this morning we will be taking up uh, the consideration of marriage as, as we find it in this text. In the evenings we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and this is where we happen to be at, at this point on this Sunday morning. And so j- uh, just for the sake of, of reference and context, I'll, I'll help situate us in the text before we, we dive in and consider uh, marriage and Christ's relationship to the church and then husbands and wives themselves. We are in a part of the book known as the Household Code where Paul is giving instructions to wives and husbands, to parents and children, to slaves and masters. But all of, all of this household code can be summed up in, in verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And after that, there's, there's a heading, if you're reading from the NASB or the ESV. Uh, but in the Greek, it's actually just one sentence that continues right there on into verse 22. You've got the NIV, there's the, the break comes before that. So Paul is, is unfolding this idea of life in the church, life in the Christian household as one of mutual submission and the way that is going to come to expression in the various relationships of, of husband and wife and the other household relationships. But as we recognize that this is talking about submission, we ought also to recognize that just before this, Paul has said, be filled with the Spirit. And that Paul has given several ways that what, it, what does it look like for the church to be filled with the Spirit or How is it that the church becomes filled with the Spirit? And he he lists several things, uh, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Uh, being thankful, giving thanks for all things, and then also being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so this whole household code fits into this this larger picture of being filled with the Spirit. What does a Spirit-filled household look like? What does a spirit-filled husband and wife, a spirit-filled marriage, look like? And this is what is is then being developed at this point. So consider then, as we uh, consider that wider idea of of being filled with the spirit of of a husband and wife, uh, submitting in the ways proper to the office of each to one another, how it is that they are to do so. And the very first thing that any married couple 
must understand is what is marriage. It is a representation in miniature of Christ's love and relationship to the church. That is the most basic, fundamental aspect of what marriage is. If you miss that, everything else that gets built on top of that crumbles. We live in a culture which sometimes speaks very confidently about the nature of marriage or the nature of the relationship between men and women, and men who boast of knowing so much about uh, sexual intimacy because they are supposedly so experienced. But in a text like this this morning, we're reminded that the sexes, male and female, and then the conjugal union between them, is not some neutral thing that's just out there that Christians are bringing a, a Christian interpretation to, but that within marriage itself, there has always been a Christological imprint placed upon it. It has always, from the Garden of Eden, always been about a greater reality, Jesus Christ dying for his church. And so don't be deceived. The world did not invent sex. The world did not discover it. The world did not perfect it. The world did not come up with a better way of doing it. And in light of Ephesians 5, the world, if they reject a, a Christian view of marriage, really doesn't know the first thing about it. We see that marriage is this, this pattern after Jesus Christ in, in two ways in our text. First, the way that Paul goes back and forth, back and forth between marriage, between a man and a woman, and then the relationship between Christ and the church. Depending on how you count, either six or eight times when Paul makes the switch from the one to the other. He so naturally uh, thinks about marriage that it's, it's a seamless transition into reflecting on the nature of Christ's love for the church. And then as he reflects on Christ's love for the church, he then goes back to marriage and, and makes concrete application there. So for example... Consider just the first few verses. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also the head of the church. Seamless transition, talking about husbands and wives, now Christ and the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Seamless transition back to the marriage relationship. We also see that marriage has always been about Jesus Christ in the church. By the way, Paul quotes Genesis. Look at verse 31. For this reason, quoting Genesis, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So if you want to understand the creation narrative, if you want to understand the formation of Adam and Eve in the garden, you must understand to really fully appreciate the depth of meaning that lies in there. You must understand that it has a greater reference than just Adam and Eve themselves. But that it has a, a new meaning that has been revealed since Christ has come into the world, that it's 
is fulfilled and has further reference to Jesus Christ. So marriage is a miniature representation of Christ's relationship to the church, and husbands and wives are called to conform themselves to that reality. Before we look at the respective responsibilities then of husbands and wives, though, each husband and wife must go again and delight in Jesus Christ and delight in what he has done for the church. And this isn't just for those who are married. This is for everyone who belongs to Jesus. Because while not everybody will necessarily be called to marriage in this life, if you are in Christ, you are going to participate and you do participate in that greater heavenly reality, which is the heavenly bridegroom and his heavenly wife. It may hurt very much not to participate in the shadow of marriage. Many people long for it deeply and desire it. But no one who belongs to Christ will miss out on the fulfillment of that joy that the shadow of earthly marriage points to. And so consider what Christ has done for his church, not just for married people in the church, but for unmarried people, for widowed people, for celibate, for those who have uh, never uh, never been able to, to find a love that is reciprocated. Hear about the Savior's love for the church and for you. Paul describes the work of Christ. <clears throat> Verse 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's what the church becomes after Christ gives himself for her. But the implication is that until he did give himself for the church, she was not all of those things that Paul just described. Paul uh, says that Christ uh, loved the church and gave himself for her so that these things might be the case, so that she might be without wrinkle, without spot, without blemish. But what does that mean she was like before? If Christ had to wash her, that means that she was dirty before. She was unwashed. If Christ is going to present the church to himself in glory, that means that she was inglorious, shameful. If he is going to present the church to himself unstained, unspotted, and unblemished, that means that before she was stained, spotted, and blemished. If he's going to present the church to himself without wrinkle, that means she was wrinkled. Young men who desire to be married, imagine a scenario like that. You have a well-meaning friend who would like to set you up with a woman and you ask him well what's she like and he goes on to describe her oh you'll love her she's never had a bath or a shower in her life she's got oozing boils she's got wrinkled skin she's probably past retirement age 
He's blemished inwardly and outwardly. She's unholy on the inside, and that unholiness breaks out in a rash on her skin. That rash isn't just from an external environmental factor. She didn't rub up against poison ivy, but it's the wickedness within her breaking out physically on her body. Trust me, you're going to love her. Christ didn't die for an already unblemished church. He didn't die for an already have my sin under control church. He didn't die for a doesn't need a bath church. The church that he loves was a church that needed sanctifying, that needed washing in the waters of baptism, that needed its sins cleansed away. It was a church that was spotted and blemished in every way, and yet which he loved. And the love that he bears for the whole church, he bears for each of the members of the church. Christ loves you. And that as his plan for the whole church is that she should be glorious and spotless and without blemish and without any imperfection whatsoever. That's also his plan for you. That you be sinless, spotless, presented to him in fellowship with all the other saints and glory. wonderful to think of a savior that loves like this a savior that doesn't come to sinners waiting for them to be righteous we read of many stolen characters in the scriptures and we may tend to read onto the earlier part of their lives the righteousness which they later exhibited but consider that God loved Rahab before she was Rahab who hid the spies while she was still Rahab the prostitute. Consider that he loved the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul, while he was still Saul the blasphemer. And consider that he loved you while you were still dead in your transgressions and sins, while you still had nothing to commend yourself, that Christ died for this kind of isn't how human love ordinarily works. Think of Esther having to prepare herself for 12 months with the other women of the harem before she goes in to be presented before the king. Beautify yourself and you will be accepted. Rather, the gospel is that Jesus Christ comes to sinners and while they are yet sinners, he dies for them. While they are yet filthy, he saves them. And he destines them for a a future destiny not to stay in their sins, but that they will one day be not only uh, legally, forensically, holy in a, a, a judicial kind of way, but also in themselves that they will have perfectly holy, righteous lives with him as they live with him forever in eternity.
This is what Christ has done for the church, and this is the reality where we must begin if we would understand and make any progress in Christian marriage. And so with this in view, let's then consider applications to husbands and wives, or rather to wives and husbands. We'll take the order as Paul presents them in the text. Verse 22, notice the scope of a wife's obedience. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's a tendency to, uh, particularly among men, and certainly a variety of men, to uh, have a condescending view of women, that the, the male sex is in, intrinsically uh, more valuable uh, before God, and that all women ought to be in subjection to them because they are a man and this is a woman. Look at what Paul says. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And by implication, other husbands, other men, uh, don't go meddling in the affairs and trying to assert uh, an authority that, that goes beyond what, what God has placed. Now, a man's authority is within his own household. If he happens to be a, a political leader, he has authority over that realm as well. But even that is circumscribed. So notice, women, that this is not a, a, an unbearable command to submit to every man who ever might tell you to do something, but it's, it's narrow in its focus. It's to your own husband, that one that you have pledged and promised uh, to be faithful to on your wedding day. Secondly, notice the manner in which wives are called to submit. They are called to submit as to the Lord, again in verse 22. That there are times when a husband may uh, request or command of his wife a form of obedience which is beyond, uh, beyond reasonable. That, he, that, that he's, he's over the line in this. And Paul says, as, as to the Lord. By, by reason of the fact that there is this relationship between a husband, as he is a, a representation in miniature of Christ's relationship to the church, render obedience as to the Lord, because ultimately that is who we are serving. He's going to make a similar application to, to slaves uh, in serving their masters, that, that ultimately it's not just your master that you're serving, you're serving Jesus Christ himself, and he will reward you. So even where there is there's an heavy-handedness. You can still, uh, women as wives can still render obedience as unto Christ, and he will, he will make light of all, uh, of all heavy-handed dealing on the part of husbands to their wives. Again, notice the, the another manner in which wives are called to submit in verse 24. Wives are called to submit as the church submits to the Lord. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. This idea of, of a wife submitting, being subject to her husband, rubs us the wrong way. We need to go back again to that, that heavenly pattern, Jesus Christ in the church, and use that as our starting point and work from there. What Christian would say, I don't think the church needs to be in subjection to Christ. I think it's just fine for the church to go off and do whatever it wants. Who put Christ in charge? 
You would say that's absurd and that's not even a Christian profession. A Christian profession is that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the church obeys and submits to him as her Lord. And so how, how terrible would it be if the church did not submit to the Lord? Here is Jesus Christ raised from the dead, saying, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the church says, eh, I'm not much into evangelism. That would be a church that has totally left her call, has left her, her Lord and has forgotten uh, what she is, is here for. In addition to, to worshiping Christ and seeing that that worship is propagated in all the earth. Or what if the church decided that it didn't want to follow the commands of Christ as they're expressed in the moral law? That the church is just going to go off and, and do whatever it wants in terms of unrighteousness. Moving raises an objection when we talk about the church submitting to Christ. We recognize that this is a good thing. We need to begin to see what marriage really is as a, a smaller representation of that greater relationship. And that this is the, the way that God has made it to work. That there is uh, a subjection on the part of wives that is to be rendered to their husbands. Finally, notice what Paul says in verse 24 that wives are to be subject to their husbands in everything. And this is a general statement in everything. And someone may come up with all kinds of what ifs. And we can grant all kinds of what ifs. What if the husband says that his wife needs to deny Christ? That's not what's in view here. But as a general rule in the Lord, where the husband has not commanded things contrary to the law of God, that there is, there is this call to a meekness, a subjection, a submission in honoring of the husband. Throughout this passage, Paul uses the, the imagery of a head and of a body. And again, we can see how a wife who would not submit in Christ to her husband uh, is, is not only contrary to the pattern of, of Christ in the church, but it's also contrary to this, this imagery of, of a head and a body. What would it be like for a body that would not respond to the leading and the direction of its head? It would be a body on the one hand that's either paralyzed or we rec recognize as, as not well because of that paralysis. The head uh, gives a, a direction and the body simply just doesn't respond. Nobody this morning, I think, got into an argument with their hand about whether or not to pick up the spoon to eat their cereal for breakfast body functions healthily when the body is, is moving in concert and in conjunction with the head. On the ha other hand, we can imagine an, another absurd scenario where the, the body go goes and has a will of its own, a life of its own that, that is totally cut off from and contrary to the direction of the head. And so you can imagine somebody walking about flailing their arms uncontrollably. And you say, stop doing that. They say, I can't help it. My body is just doing it on its own. There is a, a relationship. Christ 
is to Christ in the church as husband is the wife, as head is the body, as Adam is the Eve. This is the way that God has, has built the world to work. And we may be rightly concerned that this talk of subjection leaves itself open to all kinds of abuse on the part of husbands. Isn't this just reinforcing centuries of mistreatment of women? Isn't this just uh, giving men the license to harm and hurt their wives in all kinds of ways? And so now we turn to the men. Husbands, you too are called to a kind of mutual submission. It's a, a submission that's proper to the office of a, a husband, which is to say it's not throwing away your authority, but using the authority that you do have for the benefit and for the nourishment and for the cherishing of your wife, even to this point, as Christ loved the church. Christ didn't love the church when she had it all together, when she was clean and spotless. He loved her when she was ugly and dirty. No man has ever loved his wife so much as Christ loved the church. And so husbands are called to love their wives not when things are already perfect in the relationship, not when their wives have already expressed a, a meekness and a, a willingness to, to follow, a willingness to be in subjection. But husbands are called to love their wives even uh, in the event that their wives should be in a condition like the church prior to Christ's birth. Irrespective of your wife's flaws and imperfections, you are called to imitate and realize in your own relationship that same love which Christ has already displayed. It's not a love that says, I will love you if. I will love you if you have done all of these things already, if you are already helping me and, and being a good helper alongside of me. Shakespeare, in, in one of his sonnets, put it well. Love is not love which alters when it alterations binds. Love is not love that changes when it finds some change in the thing that it loves. Oh, the flame went out of our marriage. When we got married, we were so in love. But now my wife has changed. She's not the same person I know. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and recognize that love that does not love is not love when it alters, when it finds an alteration in its object of love. But Christ's love is steadfast and set upon the church. Can you imagine if Jesus had given up on the church at any point in history, pick any any century, any decade, any denomination, if Christ had just said, as soon as the church fails to Live as she ought. I'm done with her. Or if he had said that about you. If at any point in your life you stumble, I'm done with you. It's not the kind of love that Christ fastens onto his church. The husbands are called to fasten that same kind of love onto their wives. Further, husbands are called to love their wives as their own bodies. 
we think of that first marriage between the first man and the first woman, we recognize that this is not just a, a simple analogy of like your own body, but in the first marriage, Eve really was Adam's body. That when God created Eve from the garden, he took the rib from the man, he took flesh from him, bone from him, and he constructed Eve. That the substance of, of Eve's body really was from Adam's body. And this is not just the case there, but in the one flesh union of marriage, when, when a husband and wife come together in marriage, there is a recreation of a one flesh union such that the wife is her husband's body. And so husbands are then called to love their wives as they would love their own flesh. Even if you have a body that is not very handsome, even if you have a body that's not very fit, men, even if you have a body that is, is injured and, and uh, your hand doesn't work properly, you don't, you don't mistreat that body. You treat it like it's the best body in the world because it's your body and it belongs to you. And so, yes, you look in the mirror and it's uncomely. Yes, it's, it's a, a dad body. And yet you nourish it and you cherish it and you love it because it's your body. And the wife is the body of the man. She is an extension of that same man. In the scriptures, over and over again, we see the, the, the inversion of that pattern where man and husband work against that reality. Adam in the garden, as God confronts Adam with his sin, and Adam says, it was the woman that you gave the deed to. Shifting the blame to her. She did it trying to save his own body, his own skin, and yet in doing so, only shifting blame to his wife, who is of his very own body. This is reversed again in the gospel with Jesus Christ. That Jesus would sooner see his own body crucified, nailed to a cross, scourged and beaten, before he would see the body of his bride, the church, undergo the same. So again, husbands are called to look to this, this reality of Christ in the church and even look to their own bodies and recognize that there's a relationship that corresponds to that in their own marriages with their own wives. As we think about this idea of the woman being from man, we also recognize that the woman is from the man. God creates her for the man, for his help. But we also recognize that she was not created by the man. The woman is a unique creation of God. That Adam is, is passive. He's asleep when Eve is formed. And God presents to Adam Eve as a gift, as a companion, as a helper. And so we recognize from the man, for the man, and this is this is a normative relationship for, for marriages, but not by the man. Husbands did not make their own wives. They received them as a gift from the Lord, and they're going to be accountable to the Lord for how they treat them. And so recognize that mistreatment of your wives is something that the Lord takes very, very seriously. And Peter writes, live in an understanding with your, way, or with your wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
God doesn't, he closes his ears to the prayers of those who will not live with their wives in love. And should it ever be said that a man has struck his wife, recognize how unnatural that is, how that has gone against the very order and pattern of the way God made for it to be. God made Eve from the body of, man, of the man so that she would be cherished as his own daughter. And it's like self-harm. You wouldn't just take a knife and start stabbing yourself in the stomach or in the ribcage. And so why would you ever harm your wife? It's a difficult task that husbands and wives uh, are called to not just something that we find in our own day where marriage is, is difficult. Paul is giving these instructions thousands of years ago to husbands and wives who probably had all sorts of conflicts that would be all too familiar to us. All, all too familiar facts uh, within the home. And yet he presents to them an alternative, recognizing that, that marriage as an institution is not in itself bad. It's sinners who enter into it, but marriage as it is truly meant to be and as it exists in Jesus Christ, is a glorious thing. It is an echo coming down from heaven that would stir up our desires for that great day of the wedding feast of the Lamb when we will be together with our Savior. And so we can think of marriage as perhaps being like at a lake on a sunny day. And you see the, the ripples in the water and how uh, the ripple will, will reflect a gleam of the sun for just a split second. If you take uh, any one of those glimmers in the water, it's nothing compared to the actual sun itself. It's just a split second. It's nowhere near as bright as the sun itself. But you look at the glimmer, and you look at the thousands of glimmers, one after the other and, and alongside the other, and you recognize that's, that's what marriage is like. The marriage between this couple and this couple and this couple and this couple through the centuries, that all of it together is, is just reflecting this one greater heavenly reality, which we will all one day enjoy through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that your marriage has the potential to be one of those glimmers in the water, reflecting that, that great celestial light that shines down on us. So husbands and wives, put away cynicism. Wives, difficult as it is to hear, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as Christ submits to the church. And husbands, as difficult as it is to hear, love your wives as Christ himself loved the church and gave himself for her. And as we do so, may we find more and more that our, it is true of our marriages that they are the muffled mirth of heaven's feasting hall. They are echoes of that distant din that drops to earth when echoes shrink and small. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for that tremendous love which Jesus Christ has shown to his church, to each one of us, that while we were filthy in our sins, uh, he came to die for us, that he has washed us uh, in baptism, that he has made us uh, heirs of eternal life, that we should be with him in glory. We pray for uh, the husbands and wives of this congregation, that they would 
each of us who are married and called to that estate would uh, more and more conform ourselves to that reality and truth. And for those who do not participate in marriage at present or who may not at all in this life, would you fill each of us more and more with that hope of that uh, heavenly wedding feast, but that it would capture our minds and that we, as we live in the community of the church, would nevertheless live as those who submit to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.